Hi everyone, welcome to episode 48 of Infraction, our true crime podcast. I'm Nadia. And I'm Sally. And today's case is a listener's suggestion. Uh, This has come from Melissa. Today's case is set in York, a city in Pennsylvania in the US. Oh. (laughs) Did you think York like UK? Yeah, it did. (laughs) So... In January 2000, Danielle Keener was 18 years old and was a freshman at Susquehanna University. She had met a boy named Daniel Zapp. He was a freshman at Carnegie Mellon University, which is situated in Pittsburgh in Pennsylvania. Danielle had been on one date with Dan. The pair had gone out for dinner, and when Danielle got home to her roommate Elizabeth, she was gushing. She said that they had so much to talk about and she really felt that there had been some chemistry between them. Elizabeth asked if there was going to be a second date, and Danielle had said that she really hoped so. Danielle was not disappointed. Dan asked her if she wanted to go on another date, a date that Danielle said she would plan. She spoke to her mum about what she could do with him, and her mum had suggested that maybe they should go on a walk around the town and go down to the marina. Danielle thought that sounded like a nice idea. It would be a good way for the two to talk and get to know each other better. Danielle and Dan met up just outside of York and wandered around a bit. Then, as Danielle's mum had suggested, Danielle took them down to the marina near the water's edge. They picked up some stones and started trying to skim them, laughing at each other's attempts and chatting about their families and their lives. Whilst they were skimming the stones and getting to know each other, a red pickup truck drove up behind them and stopped. A man got out of his car with his Rottweiler dog, The man asked the couple if they wanted a lift somewhere, and the couple politely declined and said they were fine. The man got back in his car and drove away. Mm. Danielle said that the man seemed fairly normal and she didn't think anything of this interaction. Really? I think I think something of someone pulling over, getting out their car just to ask me a lift when I'm clearly not asking for a lift. Yeah. Maybe she has more faith in people than you, Sally. (laughs) Maybe. Danielle and Dan started walking along the water's edge and continued talking, when all of a sudden, the man drove his pickup truck right in front of the path they were walking along. He parked his truck in front of the couple, blocking Danielle and Dan's path. He then got out of the car and pointed a gun at them both and said, get in the fucking truck. Danielle froze, feeling as if she was in a complete nightmare and feeling like this couldn't be real. Next to her, Dan started throwing his wallet and keys at the man and told him to take them and to take his car. He told the man that his laptop was also in his car and he could have that too if he wanted. The man very calmly said, no, I don't want any of those things. Get in the truck. So just to confirm, like what, how populated is the area they are? Because I picture a marina actually having quite a few people around, but presumably it's more remote than that, is it? Like, there's not a chance at this point they can just run or there's, like, eyewitnesses or... No, so I think where they were, because they were right down by the water's edge, there wasn't that many people there. Um, And I think from what I can tell, and we kind of get into it a little bit later, like, it's a huge, huge, like, amount of almost, like, riverbank, if you will. So Mm. so where they were could could most likely have been... I mean, I assume it was very secluded because there were no eyewitnesses at this point. So I assume they were in a bit where no one else really was. Okay. The couple stared at the man wielding the gun and realised that this man was being completely serious. The pair got into the truck and the man drove off. Danielle said that it felt as if they drove forever. She said that during the drive the man was, quote, ranting and raving. He was just acting crazy, completely crazy. 
Danielle said that all they could think about was not getting hurt, and so they both just kept saying to the man that they would do whatever he wanted them to do, they just wanted him to let them go. The man eventually turned the truck off of the main road and pulled onto a dirt road. The man pulled Dan and Danielle out of the truck, and then he started pacing back and forth whilst muttering under his breath. He started ranting and saying that he didn't know what to do. He told the couple that he didn't know what to do now that they had seen his face. What? He cocked his gun and fired it at the river in front of them. Danielle said that he was using the gun to emphasise his points, like he said, I don't know what to do. Bang. You guys have seen my face. Bang. What am I going to do with you guys now? Bang. I mean, obviously this terrified them both. The fact that he was firing his gun made it very clear to the couple that he was willing to use it. They both thought they were going to die. The man got increasingly more frustrated and agitated. Danielle took comfort in cuddling up to Dan while she frantically racked her brains on what she could do to calm the man down. It just seems strange, though, because he's not made any attempt to cover his face, has he? Like, it's not like, I don't know, his mask's fallen off. He never had one on, did he? No, 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 not at all. He's clearly a very disorganised, bad criminal at this point like mm-hmm. which would actually in that situation would possibly always almost make me nervous more nervous because like he'd probably be more inclined to like just panic kill as opposed to like someone who might be like calm and calculated and who knows exactly like what their plan of action is um yeah maybe he'd be more inclined to kind of lose it and do something that he wasn't actually intending to in the first place Oh yeah, 100%, like he's completely like, almost like, yeah, disorganised is the right word, it's almost, yeah, like disorientated, like he doesn't know Mm. what he's doing, but I also found that strange, because I just thought, oh like, what am I going to do with you now, like you've seen my face, it's just like, but he, other than like, obviously kidnapping them, which obviously is a crime, he hasn't actually done, like he hasn't stolen from them, he specifically told them he didn't want to steal from them, like what, Mm. that would be very terrifying, I think, to be in that situation, because you're like, what do you want from me then? Yeah, what are you going to do? Yeah. Mm. So yeah, the man eventually stopped pacing and shooting into the river and he pointed the gun at the couple. He told Danielle to get in the front passenger seat of the truck and he told Dan to get in the back with the man's dog. The couple got into the truck, Danielle in the front and Dan in the back, and the man then got into the driver's seat. He sat silently and then he looked at Danielle and said, So, you said you'll do anything. In that moment, Danielle said that she knew that he was going to rape her. Fear tore through her. She thought about what would happen if she said no. She said that she didn't want to die, and she said that she didn't want Dan to die because of her. So she looked at the man and slowly nodded her head. He grabbed Danielle and forced himself on top of her. He then raped her in the front of his truck. Oh my god. Afterwards, he got out of the truck and opened both their doors. He then took his gun and pointed it towards the river. He said, go. Go walk down there. Dan and Danielle took each other's hands and walked towards the river, both praying that he had gotten what he had wanted and that he was going to drive off. As they walked down towards the river, the silence of the area was broken with a loud gunshot. (gasps) Dan fell to the floor, and Danielle noticed blood coming out of his mouth. She panicked and felt a huge amount of fear, and she knew that if Dan had been shot, she was going to be next. She knelt down next to Dan and noticed that he was still alive, She grabbed his hand and told him that she loved him, and he said he loved her too. They said goodbye to each other, and then another shot rung out. Danielle said that she didn't feel any pain, 
but she felt a huge pressure in her head. Then she blacked out. A short while later, she came to and she realised that she was surrounded by water. Her body had been put in the river. She said that her whole body felt numb. She could feel blood in her mouth. She realised in that moment that she had been shot in the head, so she thought that maybe she had been shot through her mouth. She slowly turned her head and that is when she saw Dan. She saw him move and she realised that he was also still alive. Oh my God, what? Mm-hmm. What's he shot them with? I, I literally, I'm like, it is a gun. So, yeah, I don't know how they've both survived this at this point. It's incredible. So she looked up the river and she saw him and she started slowly moving her arms in an attempt to push herself through the water over to him. Dan heard Danielle moving and he turned to look at her. And when she got close enough, she grabbed him and the couple held each other tightly. They looked up to the shore and fear crept through them as they realised that the man was still there, staring at him. Oh my God. His gun was still in his hand. Dan let go of Danielle and lay on his back. He told her to play dead and just float. They both lay on the water on their backs and let the water take them downstream. All the while they fixated their eyes on the man on the shore, willing him to leave. After what felt like an age... The man, satisfied that the couple were dead, got back in his truck and drove away. Danielle said that she truly believes that Dan had been put there to save her life in that river. She said that without him to guide her through that moment, she knows she would have died. Further downstream, a hunter named Pete Prowl was sat in his car. He looked up the river and saw two bodies floating in the water. He ran to the water's edge and waited as the flow of the water brought the bodies towards him. He grabbed Dan's hand first and then got further into the water and grabbed Danielle's hand as well. He said that he immediately saw that they had both been shot in the head. He said he knew they were still alive because they were both violently shaking, but neither of them could talk. Their bodies were in complete shock. Pete didn't have a phone and couldn't call for help, so instead he (gasps) ran up to the main road to flag a car down. It's like 2000, no, no one had a phone really in this story. Oh, right, okay. God, I just feel like I'm stressed. <laughs> it is quite stressful. So he told the driver that he had found two people who were alive but who had been shot and he urged the driver to drive into town to get help. Oh my God, it's the man. <clears throat> no, it's not the man, don't worry. Oh, okay. Pete ran back to the water's edge to the couple. At this point, he noticed that Dan had taken a horrible turn. He was violently choking on the blood in his throat. Soon, an ambulance arrived. Pete was so glad that the driver had taken him seriously and had managed to get help. The couple were rushed to York Hospital. Who was glad? Pete, the uh, hunter who found them. Oh, right, okay. Meanwhile, Brett Keener received the devastating news that his daughter had been shot in the face and that he should quickly make his way to York Hospital. He said that before he left, he wanted to make sure he had a part of his daughter with him, and so he picked up a photograph he had of her. He said that he spent the 30-minute drive from Harrisburg to York talking to that photograph of Danielle and praying that she would be alive when he got there. Mm. At the hospital, Brent saw his ex-partner, Danielle's mum. The pair spoke to the doctor there about the injuries that Danielle and Dan had sustained. Brent said that when he saw his daughter, he was in complete shock and he felt complete helplessness. He said that as her dad, all he wanted to do was fix the problem. He said knowing that his sweet, innocent daughter was laying there in that condition was unbearable. All he wanted was to know why this had happened. 
Dr. John Hankel spoke during the documentary 48 Hours to Live and he explained the injuries. He said, quote, The most extensive injury on the female patient involved the right lower jaw. The bones were shattered in so many places that it looked like Rice Krispies. Oh, God. We noticed tremendous facial swelling. The patient's face and head were almost the size of a bowling ball. Danielle was put into a medically induced coma to help stabilise her. Dan's injuries were also severe. The bullet had passed through the back of his windpipe and had exited out through his jaw. There was a severe risk that bone fragments from his jaw could nick an artery in his neck, which could have led to blood clots and the possibility of a stroke. The doctor said that if the bullet had been an inch over, it would likely have hit his vertebrae and killed him. Whilst the doctors and surgeons worked hard to keep Danielle and Dan alive, the police started their criminal investigation. Detective Demangane from the Northeast Regional Police Department said that the brutality of the crime shocked even the seasoned officers in the team. The investigators had a massive task at hand. Because both Danielle and Dan's body had floated down the river, the officers didn't know where the actual crime scene was. Oh, of course. The riverfront was huge and the only real way to find the crime scene was to walk along the riverfront and try and look for some blood. They walked shoulder to shoulder, staring at the ground directly in front of them to make sure none of them missed anything. Then, eventually, they came across a large pool of blood a few feet up from the water's edge. One officer went down to the water's edge and found three shell casings from a 9mm handgun. They had their crime scene and they had some evidence, but they still had no idea what had happened. Detective Demangane went to York Hospital to attempt an interview with Dan, as Danielle was, of course, in an induced coma. Dan was awake, although his injuries were incredibly serious, and the officers knew that he could take a bad turn at any moment. The detective went into Dan's room and tried to speak to him. However, Dan was in an enormous amount of pain and was attached to a respirator so he couldn't speak. They gave him a notepad and a pen, and Dan was able to write down what happened. I'll put a copy of the note on social media, uh, but this is what the note that Dan had written said. Drove by in truck with dog. Open bracket. Black Rottweiler named Sam. Close bracket. Drove by us a couple of times. Stopped once. Let dog out. Began talking to us. Got in truck. Left. Drove by us a couple more times. Then stopped in front of us. Pulled out gun. Told us to get in. Danny went in cab. I got him back with dog. Drove around fast for a long time, 10 to 20 minutes. He was very drunk. Then he wrote, box of something, but I can't tell what that word is. And then he wrote, stopped once or twice at different places on Riverbank, but people kept coming by, so he would leave right away. Finally stopped. Told us to get out and stand by the river. Didn't accept any offers of money. Said he was being paid to kill us then started talking about how he couldn't kill innocent kids, said he was going to let us go, shot a couple of times into the water, told us if we told anyone about him he would have his friends kill us, took us back in the truck, raped Danny, took us back out, stood us by the river, shot us. I think he was trying to kill us but he was too drunk. Pushed us into the river and then I think it says we floated away very fast, he drove away. This note is dated 9th of January 2000, um, and it says that the time that he wrote this was 12.03pm. God, 
how did he manage to write that like when he was barely even able to like breathe for himself is just incredible it is absolutely phenomenal like without that the police would just be searching for a needle in a haystack wouldn't they like shell casings and i don't know maybe some tire prints but yeah to have that like actual account of what happened it's just an amazing feat yeah just absolutely incredible just shows incredible strength from him um and that wasn't all the information that he gave after he wrote that note it appears that dan also wrote answers to other questions that the detective asked Mm. detective de manganet was able to go back to the station armed with further information including that the male had been between 35 and 45 years old he'd had blonde hair He'd been wearing jeans, a brown hat, and black Nike high chop trainers. He also managed to tell the detective that the pickup truck had been red and old. The officers reached out to their contacts in the surrounding police departments, and then they managed to put a list of violent past offenders together in the local area. William Babner was a name that came up time and time again. He was a known violent offender, and he loosely fitted the description that Dan had given. Adding to this, he also had a black Rottweiler. Hmm. The officers put together a photo lineup of potential suspects and took them to the hospital to show Daniel. As the photos were laid down one by one in front of him, Dan focused on each photo before the next photo was placed down. Then, when the photo of William Babner was put down, the detective noticed a reaction in Dan's open eye. He said that one of his eyes had been swollen shut, but the other eye showed complete horror and dilated as soon as he saw the photo of Babna. Dan grabbed the photo of Babna and started hitting it against the table, indicating to the officers that this was the man. The detective asked him, is that the man? And Dan nodded yes. Whilst the police worked to track down William Babna, Danielle was coming round in hospital. The swelling had gone down and so the doctors decided to bring her out of the induced coma. While she had been in her coma, surgeons had had to sew Danielle's tongue back together and put a plate in her jaw. Oh, God. When she woke up, she had a tracheotomy, so she had a tube sticking out of her windpipe. This meant, obviously, that she couldn't talk. Danielle said that during that time in hospital, she had constant hallucinations because she was on such strong pain medications. Oh, bless her. Horrifically, she said that she would look around the room and just see bloody images everywhere. She said, quote, I saw like a woman hanging with blood dripping down her face. It was like blood was everywhere. Her father sat with her for the entire time and recalled that Danielle would wake up every 10 or 15 minutes and would point to somewhere in the room and then write down that she had seen a floating bloody body or a bloody face. Brent said that it was incredibly hard to sit there and not help his daughter. Oh, God. Can't bear it. Danielle noticed that her father had put a photo of her and Dan on the table next to her bed. She said that when she looked at it, she had a flashback of Dan walking out towards the river and being shot, but she couldn't remember what happened after that. She said that she had just had this sinking feeling that Dan had died. She wrote down on her pad and asked her father what had happened to Dan. Her father said that their family repeatedly told Danielle that Dan was doing well and that he was getting better and that he was alive, but Danielle had been so consumed with the feeling that he had died that she didn't believe them. Brent, Danielle's father, then went down the corridor and asked Dan if he'd write a note to Danielle, which he then gave to his daughter. The note said, Danny, I love you, I'm okay. And after this, Danielle said that she knew that he was alive and she felt so relieved. Oh, what a good dad. I know, he's so sweet. 
So whilst Danielle fought to get better, the police were struggling to find William Babner. They had searched his home and he wasn't there. They'd gone to his known associates' homes and he wasn't hiding there either. They searched all day and most of the night and still they couldn't locate him. Detective de Manganay went home completely defeated. He took off his badge and gun and got into bed and then his pager went off. It was the chief county detective. De Manganay phoned him and the chief said, we found the truck, get back here. A quick response team was sent to Babner's girlfriend's house, the location where William Babner was reportedly hiding out. The officers didn't know if he was armed, but they had to assume that he was, given that he had shot two people and had such a violent history. The officers arrived at the home at midnight, and then they camped out in the alleyways, up trees and behind vehicles, waiting to see who was in the house. They didn't want to enter just in case Babner was armed, and he might shoot at or hold hostage whoever else was in the home with him. Early in the morning, a female left the apartment. She said that her child was indoors and that her child would be leaving at 8am to get the bus. At 8am, the snipers looking down on the property started reporting movement that they could see. They said, quote, Okay, we have an open door. There's a child. There's a man. Yes, it's Babner. He's in the door. The child's going down the stairs. The child's getting on the bus. The bus is taking off. Go, go, go. Officers then stormed the home and tackled William Babner to the ground. He was immediately apprehended and taken into custody, whilst other officers stayed in the residence to search it. Inside the property, they found everything that Dan had described. They found the black trainers, the jeans, the hat, even the black Rottweiler with the name tag that said Sam on it. The officers were overwhelmed with how much information Dan had been able to recall. Mm. For six months, the investigators compiled as much evidence as they could against William Babner, all the while offering him deals for him to plead guilty. The prosecutor's office really didn't want to take this case to trial because they didn't want to have to put Danielle and Dan or their families through that ordeal. But William Babner refused to admit his guilt, and so the trial was scheduled. At the preliminary hearing, Danielle and Dan had to face him again for the first time, and they were both, understandably, incredibly emotional. Danielle said, quote, I was terrified to see him again. I mean, he was a monster to me, and did not want to be in the same room as him. And Dan said, quote, I felt just full of fear again. That face had just instilled so much panic inside of me. During the trial, both Dan and Danielle took the stand. Danielle had to tell a courtroom full of her family and strangers about the most violent and personal attack that had happened to her when William Babner had raped her. She said it was horrific to talk about the details and relive it again. She turned to the judge and said, I was 18 years old. I wasn't supposed to go through that. Dan also took the stand and said that he hadn't realised at first what was happening when William had moved into the passenger seat, but that when he had realised, he was horrified and he said that it felt awful knowing what was happening, but being powerless to stop it. Dan also said, quote, The real gravity of the situation started to hit me. I started to realise that I'm going to die today, that no matter what I try to do, this man is going to kill me, and today is going to be my last day of my life. All of a sudden, I just felt this tremendous force, this impact that just hit me and knocked me right to the ground. And it was so sudden and it was so powerful that my mind couldn't even catch up to it. I wasn't even sure what happened until I hit the ground. I didn't even know that I had been shot. 
and I was just sort of laying there looking at the dirt and I realized that there was blood coming out of my mouth and I started to get really cold and I started to get really tired very fast. Danielle said, quote, I don't know what I would have done if Dan had not been there. Dan was my lifesaver in that river. I remember at one point our hands separated from each other and I could not move on my own. And he felt my hand slip away from his and he turned back around and he swam back and he grabbed me and pulled me to shore. I do not believe I would have survived without him. During the trial, William Babner did not testify. He actually didn't really have any defence. I guess they decided to just take the whole burden of proof lies with the prosecution thing at face value and didn't offer up any defence, alternate suspect or evidence that pointed to him not being guilty. Mm. The only, I guess, defence of sorts that he presented was that he was high and drunk and couldn't remember anything that had happened that night. I think like when I was researching this, this is what bugged me the most um, because there was no reason for him not to plead guilty. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, if you're going to go to court and present a defence, then fair enough. But if you're just literally going there, just for what? For your day in court, just so you can see these poor victims again. That's the only reason I can think of, really, is why he did it. It's just so he could see them again and just be, like, smug about it. Yeah, because ultimately, he's really just risking getting a lot worse Mm -hmm. a sentence. So, yeah, it's hard to imagine what else his motive was, unless he's just really unable to, like, fathom the situation like whether he kind of I don't know thinks it's secretly in his head like oh there was no witnesses how does it work like maybe he doesn't really understand yeah how a trial goes on and that actually yeah the evidence and stuff would be enough yeah I, I don't know but I agree it's infuriating like it's horrible to put all those people through that for what yeah for literally for nothing yeah for nothing so the judge was provided with I guess you would call it a biography of sorts um, that detailed Babner's life and criminal history. He was 41 years old at the time of the trial and he had previous convictions for drinking and driving, dealing marijuana and welfare fraud. He had also been arrested before for domestic violence, although he had never been charged for those crimes. He had never had a steady job. He had a history of chronic alcoholism and drug abuse and had reportedly started drinking when he was just 12 years old. Oh my God. Before the verdict was decided, the judge asked Babner if he wanted to say anything before deliberations began. He handed a note to his court-appointed lawyer, a public defender, and asked his lawyer to read it to the judge. The note said that Babner wished to make a motion to fire his lawyer for being an ineffective advocate. What? And I'll let you all imagine how the judge reacted to that one. (laughs) Literally the audacity of this man. Mm. Idiot. Thankfully, William Babner was found guilty on all the charges and his sentence was thankfully massive. He was sentenced to 10 to 20 years for the attempted murder of Dan Zapp, 10 to 20 years for the kidnapping, 10 to 20 years for robbery, 2 to 5 years for using a firearm in the commission of a crime, 10 to 20 years for firearms violations, 10 to 20 years for the attempted murder of Danielle Keener, 10 to 20 years for rape, 10 to 20 years for kidnapping, 10 to 20 years for three counts of involuntary deviate sexual intercourse, 5 to 10 years for aggravated assault. The judge then paused and said, each sentence is to be served consecutively. This meant the total sentence would be 117 to 235 years in prison. William Babner would not be eligible for parole until he turned 158 years old. Blimey. 
After this happened to them, Danielle and Dan kept in touch, but they didn't continue their relationship. Oh, really? Yeah, they said that it was too difficult for them to recover. When they were with each other, all they kind of spoke about was the past and what happened to them, and it wasn't healthy for either of them. Uh... And it wasn't kind of allowing either of them to move on and recover. Danielle said that transitioning back into college was hard. She said that she had struggled being around men that she didn't know. Her friends tried to help her get through it, but Danielle said that realistically she knew that she had to heal herself. She said that one night her uni held a quote-unquote take-back-the-night event. This event was a rally against rape. Anyone could attend, and then people had the opportunity to get up and speak about their experiences of being raped. Danielle said that there were so many brave women who got up to talk and just share that they had survived. She said it was so empowering and so inspiring. During the event, there was a long period of silence where nobody spoke, and so Danielle made the decision to stand up. She said that she felt so much power and strength telling her story to the large crowd of people. Her friends said that it was incredible to see her grow so much in that moment. Danielle said, quote, You know what? He may have taken a few things, but there is so much that he didn't take, that he couldn't touch, and that is what makes me who I am. Oh, God. Dan said that his immediate response to recovery was to just ignore everything that had happened. He said that deep down he knew that he should be getting therapy, but he just hoped that if he ignored the pain and the memories, then they would just go away. It took him many years to face what happened, but when he did, it helped his recovery massively. Afterwards, he began to see the world differently, and during that time he met a woman who he married in 2007. He said that she definitely helped him to get to that next level in his survival and healing. Danielle also met someone at college, a man named Kevin Maguire. Kevin proposed to Danielle after a few years of dating, and they married in a ceremony that was attended by the police chief and the hunter who had rescued Dan and Danielle from the river. Several years later, Danielle gave birth to a daughter and she said that she is so full of greatness for her baby and her husband and that she doesn't have to think about what happened to her anymore. She said that it doesn't define her. Danielle is a licensed clinical social worker and Dan has gotten his PhD in psychology. Interesting. Dan and Danielle have both said that they will forever be intertwined. They have a connection that nobody else can break and they will forever be good friends and be in each other's lives forever. There's so many things there, aren't there, that are really fascinating. Like, part of me wondered, when I was hearing it, I kind of thought, oh, this will either maybe drive them apart or mean that they stay together forever through some kind of, like, bond over, like, this horrible trauma that happened. Yeah. And I just, yeah, I found it interesting, actually, that for them to say, like, we just couldn't move past it together and it does make a lot of sense doesn't it that actually it's probably not healthy to be so yeah united over something and keep reliving it um so I found that like really insightful from them um and also I find it kind of interesting what they both went on to do as well Mm -hmm. whether like that was in part them trying to like understand what had made like a kind of man that would do what he did to them Mm -hmm. um be it like through the like psychology and the social work like obviously they're both quite yeah insightful careers aren't they so I just find that yeah it'll be curious to like hear them speak about what drew them to do that whether it was like them trying to search out some sort of understanding 
Um, but all in all, like, wow, what amazing people, like, for Dan in the hospital bed to have able to, like, garner all that information and relive it all and not kind of repress everything yeah. or or even just for either of them not to have had, like, any kind of brain damage or, yeah, just so many lucky things in that case as well as just like amazing strength from both of them um and just kind of what a lovely ending like I'm so glad they really I'm sure they still do have moments of kind of reliving it but it also sounds like actually they managed to do a hell of a lot of healing and go on to live like really happy happy lives which is just yeah her words as well at that event like made me tear up there Oh, it's just amazing, isn't it? Like, yeah, I, the mm. strength from both of them is just phenomenal. And yeah, the detective in the case, he even, um, in one of the interviews that he did, he even said, he said, like, without Dan, like, Danielle would not have survived. But also, like, William Babner wouldn't have had a face. Like, he was literally like, we found William Babner because of the information that Dan had given us when he was, you know, yeah. you know attached to, like, a... Um, respirator he had one eye swollen shut like he literally had his jaw completely you know rebuilt like all the rest of it just absolutely phenomenal that he managed to remember all that information and to and I'll put the note on social media like it's very detailed it's unbelievable that he managed to just write all mm. that and remember that and remember kind of like the timeline the events what had happened why they moved away from certain areas because they were busy the fact that the dog was called Sam do you know what I mean like they had so much evidence yeah, exactly. because Incredible. of what Dan had said like there was no way William Babner could you know, not be identified through that. Do you know what I mean? Like there was so much evidence, even down to the fact that his dog had the name collar with Sam on it. Like there was just so much evidence that connected yeah, absolutely. it. Absolutely. Just phenomenal. Yeah, just really phenomenal. Yeah. Like just I just think when I was researching this though, I just couldn't other than the fact that he was obviously drunk, um and I think it came out of the trial as well that William Babner was on like um opiates and things like that as well. So he was on drugs as well. I can't think, I don't understand like what the purpose of this crime was though. Like it was so almost like random. Do you know what I mean? That he just like saw them, he just like picked them up like and then did all these horrible things, tried to kill them. It just seems absolutely bizarre. Yeah, you almost wonder like, was he hallucinating? Like, was he, like, did he believe that someone was paying him to do that? Like because of like the drugs and the alcohol, was that just uh, like a line, like him trying to talk himself into doing something that like he'd always thought about? Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, I agree with you. It's really hard to understand like his motives for it, given, yeah, how kind of stressed he sounded about the whole mm-hmm. thing, like from what Dan and Daniel mm-hmm. said. Um, very strange, very strange indeed. But I mean, you've, if he's yeah had a serious drinking problem at like 12, then you can only imagine that there's been like, some quite difficult things that have gone on on in his childhood so I think we're not clearly talking about someone who's like of a completely sound mm-hmm. mind in any case never mind the fact that he was clearly like completely intoxicated so I think it's one of those ones you could probably guess a hundred times and never know what like yeah what his motive was what led him there that day why them yeah I agree with you they all sound and I think those kind of crimes are always frightening aren't they because like it was completely random yeah it was just it was just by complete chance that they were there like it was just it's just so unfortunate yeah and also really well I was going to say really strange for him to have picked up Dan as well like if it was a sexually motivated crime you'd kind of think would you not just pick 
Daniela, mm. but then I suppose then Dan would have been able to report it. But then, again, seems strange for him to have kept Dan alive that whole time. But yeah, I think that just probably speaks to like the nature of how disorganised and panicked. Like, I think it was a spur of the moment, quite probably, as, as opposed to anything that was like premeditated for months, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, completely. No, I kind of felt that as well when I was researching this and writing out all my notes, because it just felt like almost like the sexual assault and raping Danielle, it almost felt like that wasn't really planned. Do you know what I mean? Like he went to like mm, three yeah. or four different locations and then they were too busy. Then he found a secluded location. Then he was like, what, get out the truck. Oh no, get back in the truck. And then he was like, oh, you'll do anything. Oh, and then he obviously he raped her. And it just almost seems like, uh, what's the, how, how do you phrase it? Like almost just like he he did it for the sake of doing it because he had kidnapped them and he didn't know what else to do. Do you know what I yeah. mean? Like it just seemed so yeah awful and random. Yeah, because originally, I don't know why, I sort of thought when you first started telling me, my mind initially jumped towards some sort of like ransom situation. Yeah. So yeah, I agree. I think, yeah, I don't think he really had any kind of plan. Which is, makes it even more terrifying. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much, Melissa, for this suggestion. Um, we really hope you guys enjoyed this episode. As always, you can find us on social media at infraction.thepod um, and I'll put the note that Dan wrote from his hospital bed up on there so you can see it and you can see how much detail he really did put into it. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. Um, if you want some bonus content and to support the show, then you can do so at patreon.com slash infractionthepod. Um, and yeah, we will see you next week for another episode. Thank you. Bye. Bye.